I have to hurry up and go to service right now. I have to go perform some duties for my rabbi. Could we do this again, say about 1 o'clock central time tomorrow? I'm so sorry, Lisa. What time should I give you a call back? Let's see, you're, you're in San Jose, right? Yes, San Jose, California. Okay, so that's right outside of Los Angeles. So um, I would say uh, probably about 10 a.m. your time. 10 a.m. my time. Okay, so I will give you a call back tomorrow. Okay, okay all, all right. right, great. Hail Thank, Caesar. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Speaking of too stupid to not mention, I mean, did I tell you what I did to that guy's armpit yesterday? Uh, No. All right, yeah, well, you see, it was one of those situations in which there's a lot of gravel on the... Yeah, oh, you know, hell, shoot, that's right, we got to record. Um, um, hi, hi, everybody, uh, this uh, uh, this is um, um, Startled Sean, uh, coming to you from Chicago, the home of Guarantee Rate Park. Guarantee Rate, stealing from California insurance companies since 2016. This is Jimmy G, but I need a... Sp- you know what? Since everybody's selling corporate sponsorship names these days, uh, as just happened with the uh, that ballpark on the south side of Chicago, I got to think of a, a um, what would be a perfect corporate sponsorship for me? Um, uh, oh, <clears throat> this is uh, Jimmy's G brought to you by Summer's Eve. I like it. That's my name for the episode. Jimmy G brought to you by Summer's Eve. Ding. So, ding. Yes. I don't know what the significance of the ding is. I just thought it was necessary, but... Uh, well, they do that whenever there's a shout-out on uh, 10 pence. That is true. That is true. I need mm-hmm. a shout-out, Bell. I know I have one around here somewhere. I think uh, my wife might have uh, taken possession of it. <laughs> hey, what's brown and sounds like a bell? <laughs> a brown bell. Whoa! <laughs> Dung. Uh, that's a good one, eh? In it, in it, eh? <clears throat> So yeah, I think Hyde's going to use the crickets uh, sound effect. No, 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 no! Come on, not the crickets, <laughs> not the crickets. We, he hasn't used it in a while, but I know I, I, I kind of like the the Price is Right sound effect better. Hmm. Okay, I just use this with the uh, Price is Right sound effect in this. Yeah, or or a buzzer. A buzzer's good too. Or how about a buzzer from the Price is Right? Oh, oh there you go. But, oh. but you know what? Um, the buzzer's overused. Ferg uses the buzzer. Yeah, just go with the the uh, the no, prices. Ferg right. uses boom, the boom, Intellivision boom. Raz for a buzzer. Yeah, that's true. He does. Maybe we could get uh, a uh, oh, oh, let's get some sort of a buzz from an Atari Twenty Six Hundred game. Hmm. Okay. Wait. Get a buzz from an Atari Twenty Six Hundred game. Is that even legal? Oh, if you play tap. Oh, I can't- not even with Tapper though, because that's Mountain Dew. Yeah. Oh, crud. What game could you get a buzz? If you have any ideas, email piefactorypodcast at fab4it.com. Ding. So, ding. <laughs> I'm going to use that. I'm just going to say ding from now on. Ding. So, Sean. So. Oh, art thou? Um, wait, 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 wait. You're hosting. You're allowed to ask questions. Come on. But you're hosting. But to, answer, to answer your question, uh, Mr. Sidekick for the night, I, I guess oh, I'm doing okay. Oh, oh. I got some... Uh, I forgot to mention a couple of pickups that I got. I, I got a few more Atari 2600 games that I upgraded to CIB. So uh, I have some uh, loose ones that I'll probably be sending over to, to uh, Albert at Atari age for some uh, store credit there. One thing I forgot to mention, though, 
in my Your body odor. I, I acquired. I have the latest Atari seventy eight hundred homebrew. Have you heard of it? I don't know. It is called Fat Axel. Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I didn't know the story behind this one, but I'm gonna let you tell it. Yeah, uh, Franco Dragon, who is a uh, uh, a user on Atari Age, just started getting into learning how to program the Atari seventy eight hundred. So he basically like put his first project. Uh, on a cartridge. I mean, it's not the most awesome game in the world, but it's very rudimentary. I really hope somebody puts it on the 2600 though, because it would really look good in the 2600, I think, but it's still fun to play. You control Axel Rose, uh, although he looks more like a suntan, like middle Eastern or like wandering through the desert, quite frankly, <laughs> but, uh, in other words, he looks like Axel Rose. Yeah. He kind of looks like Axel Rose, I guess. And as Axel Rose, you have to eat Various food items that are flying at you, like donuts and cookies and uh, cups of coffee and stuff, while avoiding certain things. Um, I forgot what one of the things was you have to avoid, but one of the things you have to avoid is Slash. <laughs> yeah. If you collide with Slash or something else well, that you're not some... supposed to touch, you basically lose hit points. And once you run out of hit points... You get points... some hit points slashed off, huh? Exactly. That's why they call them Slash. Hey. But um, what happens hey, is what as slashing you... slashing prices... The more you, the more food you collect. I don't think Axel actually gets bigger in size in this game either. That or I haven't made it far enough to see him get bigger. But periodically, you'll get a message on the screen that says you're getting fatter or something. Oh, it's like a remake of Fast Food for the twenty six hundred. That's probably what it is. I haven't played Fat Food, Fast Food, so. Uh, oh, that, I like that. It's a fun I game. I haven't. Uh, I just never played it. Man, I gotta get with the program here. Yeah, I bought that years ago. <sighs> he says as he buffs his fingernails. Of course. Yeah, I bought it years ago, too, but I still haven't played it. <laughs> well, but, uh, I'm one up on you. Uh, the, the thing with the Fat Axel, though, it was created in response to the fact that Axel Rose was complaining about all of the Fat Axel memes on the internet. And I just thought that was awesome. That alone was worth, <laughs> is worth uh, checking into this game. Yeah. It just occurs to me that, except for Crazy Auto, I now own every Atari 7800 homebrew that you can get at the Atari Age store. Really? Yeah. Wow, you're quite a few up on me in that regard, but you don't yeah. have kids. But you do have no, a Ruthie, I, so. I, I, yeah, I have I have Ruthie the Beagle to take care of. But uh, it, it also helps that one of the homebrews that I have is Bob DeCrescenzo collection, which has like a good chunk of his uh, True. titles on it. So it means I don't have to buy them individually. So that kind of helped. Yeah, I've actually been, uh, I haven't done anything with it lately, but uh, I've been kind of <clears throat> being mentored by Pac-Man Plus about... Uh, doing some, some rudimentary graphic hacks on oh, the awesome. 7800 and he got me started in a direction and I was I'm, I've been tinkering around with food fight oh are you gonna make my uh, iron chef food fight actually no I had something else in mind uh, ah. to be perfectly honest but I I'm just tinkering so I don't know it, I might not ever do anything with it but uh, what are you gonna do but, make uh, Chuck fat so he looks like me shut up um, <laughs> great now I got to do something new. Uh, one of my ideas was to uh, to try to uh, see if I can't spruce up the graphics on Xenophobe so you can play Dr. Quack ah. uh, in the game. Because if you're going to play Xenophobe, you have to be Dr. Quack. There's just no way around it. And uh, I was going to see if there was something I could do about making the graphics in Scrapyard Dog a little bit better. I, I still got to play that. Yeah, I don't know if anything can improve that game. It's it's I, I don't like it. I, I don't like it. But that's just me. But I went on a 7800 frenzy one night in the past week or so. 
my wife stepped out for a while, so I was kind of by myself. It's like, hmm. So let, you played Frenzy 7, in the 7800? No, no, no. Oh. No, unfortunately. I should have, though. Because then you would have been accurate doubly. I played Beef Drop for a while, which is a um, a homebrew version of Burger Time, retitled uh, to avoid uh, copyright problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, also Bonk, which is spelled B asterisk N capital Q, which is uh, from Bonk the same Q. guy from Ken's, Ken Siders. It's a homebrew version of Qbert, which, which is, is very arc- good, I might add. It is almost arcade perfect. I got farther in that than I've ever gotten by far. Because, I mean, we'll talk about this in greater depth, of course, when we talk about Qbert, but I was able to get to level nine and then pass it twice. Like, once you get past level nine, it repeats. Uh huh. And it's surprisingly doable when you have to change the, the cube colors like twice. I was surprised at how doable it was after just a little bit of patience. Mm-hmm. And I got over 300,000. Nice. Which is insane for me. I know I've gotten six digits before on the uh, the arcade game, but uh, never since I started recording on Orcade.com, because my Orcade high is like well under 100,000. So it's like, man, mm-hmm. why can't I transfer this over? Well, then again, the arcade, you got to play like diagonally. I don't play diagonally on the home versions. I just hold the joystick the regular way, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I always hold the joystick diagonally when I play at home, but that's, you know, the official versions made you do that. Yeah. So. But hey, that's that's been my week, at least my week in gaming. So how about you, Jimmy G, brought to you by Summer's Eve? Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, actually, I haven't really been playing a whole lot. The other day I sat down and I haven't played a, f- I played a, a couple of rounds of, uh, let me think, what were they? Um, Miracle Warriors on my uh, Sega Master System, trying to see what that you know, game's about. It's typical RPG fare. Uh, just trying to, you know, get further in that. But uh been playing a few just off and on things on Stella and on MAME and that. And I know I've brought this up before, and I bring it up every now and then. We talk about Ed Ladin's stuff all the time. And I really, really love his uh, his adapter, which lets you use uh, Genesis controller on the 7800. Uh, one thing I don't think he has, though, is some sort of an adapter that allows you to use controllers like that on your PC with a USB output. And... If you go to 2600-dapter, D-A-P-T-O-R.com, uh, this guy, uh, I've bought the Vision Dapter from him, which allows you to use the ColecoVision controller, the uh, DB9 Intellivision controller, or the uh, Sega Genesis controller on your PC. It's a USB interface. I believe I can also use the Atari 2600 on that uh, on this adapter as well. But he also makes adapters so you can use the Neo Geo controllers, on your PC, uh, TI-99, Odyssey 2, MSX, uh, Fairchild Channel F uh, controllers on your PC. He makes one for the Bally Astrocade, so you can use that on your PC. He also makes an Atari 5200 adapter, so you can use that through the adapter uh, through USB on your PC as well. He's got um, two different versions of the actual 2600 adapter. Uh, one that allows you just allows you to use the joystick paddle and a driving controller, but he's got another one that allows you to use the the trackballs, the uh, video touchpad, the keyboard controller, the Gemini controller that came with the Coleco Gemini that was the Coleco's um, 2600 clone, and tie in with our last episode, <laughs> the uh, the power grip for Omega Race. It allows you to use that on your PC as well. So uh, 
you might want to check some of his stuff out. I'm not getting paid for any of this. In fact, yeah. I bought my Vision adapter specifically to use it on my Raspberry Pi, which I haven't actually done anything with that in a while. But um, I've been using it all the time on my PC and on my laptop. And I tell you what, I, I absolutely love the hell out of this thing. And uh, you do have to get a, um, a USB cable separately, one of the ones that uh, you use to, you know, to plug a printer in. It's kind of got that squarish uh, like connection on the one end. It's but, a Type A um, to Type B cable. Yeah, 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 that's the one. But uh, seriously, check this guy's stuff out. It's not necessarily the least expensive thing you'll find. What is the least expensive thing you'll find? Well, actually, I stand corrected. The 2600 adapters run 25 for the original, 30 for the adapter 2. You get a discount if you buy multiple. Yes, you do. And the Intellivision ones... Okay, the Intellivision ColecoVision one is a little more expensive. It's... Well, no, not really. It's 30 bucks. If you have the, the original Intellivision controller, which you have to open the unit up and unplug it, you have to buy a dongle for it, which is just an extra three bucks. But um, yeah, check it out. They're not, they're not as expensive as I was thinking they were. But uh, yeah, check them out. 2600-adapter.com. Link in the and, show uh, notes. Link in the show notes. I cannot recommend this device uh, higher. Uh, I could recommend a better ColecoVision controller, but... That's a different story altogether. Uh, I do have to say it works quite nicely. I keep bringing this up with my Sega Genesis Arcade Power Stick. Powers. And it works quite well with the Ed Ladden Siegel 78 adapter for the 7800 as well. Ding. So there you are. Oh, he does have the six-foot USB 2.0 8B cable on hand for an additional two bucks. Yeah, so that's about oh. it with me. Um... So what were you going to do? What I was going to do was uh, remind everybody, oh, it's too late to remind everybody that uh, the Charles Nelson Riley contest will be ending with episode 37 because this is episode 37. As you may recall, the contest was to finish the setup of this joke and provide the punchline. How many Charles Nelson Rileys would it take to blank? blank. We got some uh, entries. We were able to narrow it down to two. There's a two-way tie that we're going to have to do a coin toss to decide. The heads entry reads like this. How many Charles Nelson Rileys does it take to play match game and hoodoo with Witchy Poo? Just one, but it will consume more makeup from Tammy Faye Baker, Boy George, and Gene Simmons combined. What's our tails entry going to be? How many Charles Nelson Rileys would it take to move a sorry Charlie cabinet? Answer, 13, one for each of the eight joysticks on the cabinet, one for the spitter, one for the trackball, one for the roller, one for the foot pedal, and one to hold the fire extinguisher. Full disclosure, we were a little bit prejudiced because we love Sorry Charlie jokes and just wish that we were the ones who came up with it in the first place. Oh, yeah, but you know what? That other podcast that started that, uh, they haven't had a new episode for a while, so maybe we could take credit for it without them knowing. Hmm. You never know. That's true. That's true. Because uh, I'm sure Jeff Prescott doesn't listen to our podcast. Nah, nah. Why, why would he? He's got his own arcade podcast. Anyway, do you have a coin handy by any chance? Oh, you know what? I got one. I got one. I got a coin. Never mind. All right. We're going to go ahead and toss the coin. And it's Tails. Tails. Yay, Sonic will be proud. Whose entry was that, by the way? I don't remember. You just read the damn thing. <laughs> I know, I don't remember. Look at the entry. You mean the thing that's on my screen right in front of my face? Yes. Oh, John Singletary. John Singletary. You, you know, I was about to say your winner, but we did that last time we had a contest. I don't want to overdo the your... By the way, something that just occurred to me not terribly long ago. 
one or both of us referred to that phrase, your winner from Big Rigs over the road racing. We referred to that as English. Well, it's still valid English. It really is. It's just not how we normally would say it. It has a subject and a verb in it. Yeah. It even has a predicate nominative in it. It is a It's acceptable sentence. without being correct. It is. It is. I mean, it's, cor- it's correct. It's just not how we usually say it. We don't usually but say who, your winner. Who, who in their right mind would type it like that? Well, hey, if it's in a video but game. But it needs like, the A, though. Or you the. Can't, you, you can't go up to someone and say, you are a winner. Watch me. All right. Turn your webcam on. Oh, wait a minute. Ah, oh, cut it out. Oh, stop that. But anyway, yeah, congratulations, John Singletary. We will be getting the uh, the T-shirt oh, and the and uh, by the way, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> P.S. Is John Singletary related to Mike Singletary? Ooh, ooh, that's deep. Anyway, yeah, John, we'll send you the T-shirt. We will send you the Ed Lydon Seagull 78 as well. We hope you enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, we hope you make lots of money off of it, off of uh, eBay or whatever else have you. And if you make money off of the T-shirt, we would like a cut, just saying. Oh, you know what? We never did say who the runner-up was. Unfortunately, we don't who have was? a runner-up prize. Uh, maybe, I'll, I'll, see if I, I'll see if we have something in the... Uh, Pie Factory prize closet here at Pie Factory headquarters north, but uh, it's not so much a Pie Factory prize closet as it is a recipe filing box. That is but true. Still, yeah. but still, I don't know how to pronounce this gentleman's name. The uh, uh, first name I'm guessing is Breck, and the last name is Brixius. Brixius. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. So anyway, please thank you, uh, thank you, email Breck. us and correct us. Yeah. Nothing anybody loves more than being corrected. But yeah. I really would wish we would have had the the guy who submitted the question unfinished. I wish he would have come up with a punchline because I was really looking forward to that. But he was like, "Yeah, I can't think of anything." Well, hey, you can't blame a guy for trying. Nah, nah. unless it's me, then you blame me all you want. I'm very good at being a scapegoat myself. So hey, yes. But uh, that I'm so very we good got, at singing songs from Escape Club. So there you go. There we go. So good, we can finally change that Charles Nelson Riley picture on our Facebook page back to something hey, a little bit more. Not that we don't like him; it's just that it was getting creepy. Yeah, yeah, it was getting boring too. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do an impersonation of him. I need to work one. Neither can I. Neither can I. Hey, Scott Lambert did a good Charles Nelson Riley impersonation, but that was on a typed message though, so I couldn't really hear it. Hmm. Yes, yeah, because you know, the thing was is that he was typing it out, but. Uh, because, you know, he didn't have a microphone to record the MP3, so uh, it was all a bunch of ones and zeros. And then yeah. we had to assemble it into an MP3. But, oh boy, those ones and zeros, the comedy he got mixed up in those. I'm telling oh, you. I'm let telling me you. tell you. Yeah, please do. Oh, yeah, other news. Speaking of uh, Scott Lambert, uh, hoping this gets out in time. Hide. August 28th is Underground Retrocade's 2016 Summer of Games finale. They're going to unveil their final game of the summer. Walter Day is going to be there. Billy Mitchell is going to be there. Tim McVeigh, who is the first person ever to reach a billion points on an arcade game. Um, I think he hates me because of the things I was saying about Windows. <laughs> but Uh-oh. he is the star of the documentary Man vs. Snake, which will be screened at Underground Retrocade, I believe, up on the second floor. Yes, and, you, and uh, watch out for it. Watch out for Snake. And yeah. uh, Joel West will be there as well. Uh, you might remember him from such films as Chasing Ghosts. And Man vs. Nature, The Road to Victory. I think my favorite Troy McClure film is Alice Doesn't Live Anymore. <laughs> I still love the the Man vs. Nature Road to Victory one myself. Mm, but yep. 
I think that's all the news items that I have. How about you, Jimmy G, brought to you by Summer's Eve? I don't believe I have any. Oh. So, what shall we do? Um, you know what we should do? We should probably talk about Adender and Arata. Ah, the Adenda and Arata theme. Uh, the love theme from yes. Adenda and Arata. And we actually have some Adenda and Arata. Oh, goodness. Um, we actually got something wrong, huh? Well, I've got some addenda, actually. Um, oh, okay, so it's not so much that we got something wrong, it's more like we ignored stuff. Yeah, well, didn't maybe not necessarily ignored, but did not know. And Ooh. this actually ties into the previous two episodes about Tempest Tubes and Robotron Defender. Um, actually, Tempest uh, Tempest Tubes is what this relates to from that episode. Tempest, Tempest Tubes, t- electric boogaloobs. The levels for Tempest Tubes were actually created by a guy named Duncan Brown. He was an arcade owner. Uh, I did not get the information of where the arcade was, but uh, also in the arcade, he reverse-engineered the standard Williams hardware that Robotron and Defender and Stargate and Wait, Joust hold on, all ran hold on, on. Hold on, hold on. Okay, go ahead. Ah, yes. Uh, so here's uh, here's uh, some quotes from him. I found this on arcade-history.com, which is different than arcademuseum.com. Uh, <clears throat> by 1984, I reverse-engineered the hardware used in Williams Games to the point where I had essentially created a programmer's guide for it. Destiny called. I had to write a new game from scratch for this great hardware. My original intent was to end up with a conversion kit that was more user-friendly than most. Remember, this is back when conversions were just starting to come into existence, long before JAMA, and most of them were a complete mess to install. A new marquee, new side stickers, new control panel, and 12 EPROMs, and away you go! No messy wiring, board modifications, etc. My production costs would be low, my sale price could be high. Well, that was the plan anyway. Over the course of a year, I wrote Alien Arena. It was written in 6809 assembly language using a cross-compiler on an Apple II+. Plus. Using custom-designed and hand-built emulator hardware, 24-2KX8 static RAMs on a board connected to the Apple with a custom bus interface. See that 10 He's times He's pretty fast. proud of that because there's an exclamation mark. Um, I could test out my code without the slowdown of programming and erasing a bunch of EEPROMs all the time. When I was done, I assembled it into an ex-Stargate cabinet and put it out in the arcade I owned at the time. I made a few modifications, mostly to the computer player AI, based on feedback from customers. Cannot say it was an immediate hit. Most people thought it sucked, frankly. You decide for yourself. I know my wife and I had a blast playing it while I was designing it. Probably added six months to the time to finish it. <laughs> so, there you go. A little bit of interesting uh, information uh, from Duncan Brown, the guy who did the levels for Tempest Tubes, and uh, hacked into the hardware for Williams games. So just thought that was interesting. And apparently I was wrong. But yeah, I got that from arcade-history.com. Apparently that is actually the source of site for the the main history dat files. So you might want to check them out. I've actually been reading stuff on uh, different uh, arcade games. A lot of times at random on that page. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff on there. Can't uh, speak to the veracity of some of it. But... uh, it's it's interesting nonetheless. So, there you go. There I go, huh? Yes. So, did we get any um, feedback on our usual go-to spot, Atari Age? Uh, I believe so. Oh. And if I had Atari Age up on my screen right now, that would mean something. Oh, would it mean something? 
Well, while we're at it, Soul Blazer, who, by the way, is one of our sponsors on Patreon.com, so thank you, Soul Blazer. He's saying that TXK, which is the pseudo-sequel, as he says, to Tempest, is still on the PlayStation Store. I just checked right now. I bought the game a few months ago when I picked up a PlayStation TV, the home version of the Vita, or is it Vita? I don't know. And you can play the game on the PSTV or the PS Vita Vita Vita, whatever. It never came on a Xbox system. There were plans to port the game to the PS4, PC, and Android before Atari put the stop to that, but the game never got yanked from the store. The game is really great, feeling like Tempest 2000 with a few minor tweaks and improvements, and the thumbstick on the controller gives an acceptable substitute for the rotary-style controllers. Uh, if I might interrupt for a moment there, I'm finding when I play in MAME, a lot of games that have like a paddle or a uh, trackball or, or something like that to control, I do find many times that a thumbstick with its uh, analog control actually does work with that stuff, work with a lot of those games quite well. Just throwing that out there. Now, here's where Soul Blazer gets very New England. Tempest is a game I played in the arcade a few times, but never got far because it's wicked difficult. It's one of those games I like, but never loved due to that fact. Very unique game and still a lot of fun to play today, but the story I'd always hard behind, what, I, the story I'd always hard behind Tempest is, is that while the programmer was trying to make the 3D Space Invaders game he was charged with, he had a nightmare about spiders coming out of a hole, and that gave him the gameplay idea. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. I thought we mentioned that, but that is indeed the case. I thought it was actually monsters coming out of a hole, but... Monsters to be pitied. Monsters to be despised. It doesn't matter. It's basically the same story that we had heard. Just the huh. enemy is different. I'm trying to think. Is that Christina Hendricks that he has on his... Uh... I have a t- anyway, uh, he goes on to say, Omega Race is a game I never saw in the arcades. Yeah, me too, until Galloping Ghost, of course. And played for the first time on the ColecoVision flashback in 2014 oh, when it I came out. I forgot that that's on there. It's been so long since I've fired up my ColecoVision flashback. Oh, I didn't know you had one. I just don't see a need to play it. You know, I, I shouldn't say this, but... Lately, part of me has been thinking maybe I should get a ColecoVision, like especially with all those opcode games, but no, I don't think so. I don't think I want to do that, <laughs> at least not right now. But anyway, he goes on to say, I've since played the Atari 2600 version in emulation, hacked to be playable on a regular joystick, and despite the graphics and sound not being as good as the Coleco version, I prefer that port. Yeah, interesting. Wait. The Coleco version oh. controls don't handle as well. Wait, the Coleco version controls? Actually, he says the Coleco Vision controls don't handle as well. And you're right about that being a flicker fest. He says when you cover Gorf in the next episode, that's this episode, by the way, <laughs> be sure to talk about the whole mess behind the unauthorized homebrew port to the Jaguar made a couple of years ago. Those people who stay out of that forum because they are allergic to flame wars will thank you for knowing the story finally. You know, I couldn't find what he was talking about. You, yeah, know, you, talking you know what? I stay out of the Jaguar forums on Atari Age because I hear it's a dark and scary place. I hear mere mortals have gouged their own eyes out. The only Jaguar thing I ever was involved in was I watched Angry Video Game Nerds video about the Jaguar and the CD on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the CD add-on basically makes it look like a toilet. Yeah, it, it definitely does. As he says, "What were they thinking?" And let's see, Phil the No Swear Gamer. He says, "If it makes you feel better, I got the Ayn Rand reference, despite the fact that I'd never read any of her books. Shame on me." Yes, who is John Galt? 
<clears throat> yes, exactly. And even though I've only been able to read a hundred pages into that snooze fest, but that's just me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Phil goes on to say, also, I tried using the Omega Race booster grip on Stargate for the 2600. Booster thank grip plugged into it, the second the port and joystick. Yeah, thank you, Phil. He plugged it into the second port and the joystick in the first port, hoping one of the buttons would register as pressing the button on controller two, but it does not work. He says, as far as I know, the booster grip only serves a function for Omega Race and no other game. Which makes you wonder why they did it. I mean, at the very least, yeah. the video touchpad that came included with Star Raiders on the 2600 theoretically had other uses. In fact, I think it was, you could use it to, re- I think it was just a redesigned uh, keypad controller, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. And the same thing with the uh, touchpad controller for the, like the... Uh, the kids controller. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's the same thing, just different it's just uh, casing. It's muy grande. Yeah. And Cinecaster uh, says, another interesting tidbit about Tempest history that I don't believe was mentioned in the episode. Apologies if it was and I just missed it. Uh, it very, It's very likely we didn't mention it, either that or I, we, I both, don't remember mentioning or, or we both forgot that it was mentioned. Uh, in an early version of the game, movement of the spinner control would cause the tunnel itself to rotate. Wow. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we did mention that during play testing. Some players reported that the rotating screen made them feel sick. I could see that. So Dave Thur changed it to the control scheme we know today, where instead the screen stays still and the player rotates around the top of the tunnel. And th- thinking about it, it would seem to me that making the tunnel spin, you would have to make all the enemies or whatever in the tunnel spin too. And it would seem to me that that would be a huge. Huge, like, resource hog. Huge resource hog for the processor, because with having just your ship moving around the outside, you only the, the hardware only has to remember the uh, your, your shooter, for the most part, and maybe your bullets. But with the whole thing turning, you'd have to remember the, the, it would have to remember the spikes, the bullets from the enemies, the enemies, the play field itself, the, the sector, whatever, the stars in the middle. Um, so it would seem to me that just having your ship on the outside rotate is just the better move in the long run anyway, even if people didn't get, you know, mate, if people didn't feel sick from it, it would tax the processor. Tax, huh? And I have a feeling she'd tax me too. Ooh! So. Good night, everybody! Ah, yeah. Uh, we also heard from uh, Chris Federico, who made this interesting point. I don't know how this got mixed in here. One of us, i.e., uh, this guy talking right now mentioned that Omega Race was created by Allied Leisure. It actually wasn't. It was actually created at Midway. What happened was Ron Halliburton and uh, some of his teams had migrated to Midway from Allied Leisure. Allied Leisure no longer existed at the time because it had been renamed Centuri in 1980. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really, I think we need a flowchart for all the Midway stuff, especially with tonight's episode. Because that just adds to it, really. Do we have any oh. more addenda and errata, or should we close the door? I think we can close the door on addenda and errata. Yay! So, you know what? I think it should be safe to start talking about a couple of arcade games. What do you say, hmm? Well, I say, since you're the host, I will let you uh, select which game you want to talk about first. And uh, despite our ver- widely varying opinions on these games... They're both, uh, I think, fa- both fascinating from a historical perspective, uh, albeit for different reasons. Yeah. But uh, still. Uh, but since you're hosting, you choose. Um, okay. Um, I do believe let's start with Gorf. Ooh. Ooh. So you're not going to go out with a bang, huh? You're going to rather go out with a whimper. 
believe me, I'm gonna. There's a lot of whimpering involved. Okay, so yeah, let's go with Gorf. Ah, Gorf. Which is frog backwards, by the way. You know what? Chris Federico also said that in his uh, feedback to us. Mind blown. Yes. Why did Midway call it Gorf? Or why did whoever designed it call it Gorf? I'm glad you asked. Uh, boy, I'm trying to think of a good Johnny Carson comeback to that. Uh, I'm glad you asked, Onion Head. Gorf is an acronym for Galactic Orbiting Robot Force. But why did they choose that acronym? I don't know. It's because one of the designers, Jay, now Jamie Fenton, used to have the nickname Froggy. Oh, really? And that's kind of a little hidden reference to that. I did not know that. Yeah, I think when she was in high school or college, that was her nickname. Uh Uh-huh. Shall we talk about the game? Let's talk about the controls first. First of all, it's Uh, the controls. Ah, controls. It's uh, basically a flight stick type joystick, kind of like you would see on a, a Satan's Hollow machine or a Tron machine. Uh, I think it's the same design. It's just a you know a solid black uh, joystick. It, it's basically a four-way flight stick with a trigger. The game is uh, kind of like uh, you know where you have your ship, you move it side to side. But unlike Space Invaders Galaxian, which we will actually talk about here in a moment, you actually have some leeway to move up and down as well, which uh, I find. Um, interesting there are five different rounds in the game first of all the first round is called astro battles it's basically a space invaders clone uh the difference is you have a kind of a semicircular or parabolic shield protecting you whenever one of the invaders uh shoots down at you it uh, knocks off a chunk of the shield when you fire a laser it temporarily turns the shield off for a moment so that your shot can pass the invaders get placed on the screen by a Gorfian ship. The Gorfian ship can be destroyed, but it will still shoot out the invaders, you know, populate the screen with the invaders, uh, even though it's blown up. Uh, unlike Space Invaders, Space Invaders has 55 aliens. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that there's a big hole in our podcast. We have not talked about Space Invaders yet. We've talked about Pac-Man. We've talked right. about Asteroids, which are two of the big classics from that era, but we haven't touched on Space Invaders yet. I was just so, thinking that. Yes, we need to correct that. But at any rate, in Space Invaders, there are 55 enemies on the screen at one time. Uh, This one, there's only 24. And the amazing thing is, even though this round is called Astro Battles, the sprites all look like, they look exactly like Space Invaders, which Bally Midway did uh, release Space Invaders in the U.S., even though it is a Taito game. They licensed it from Taito for North American distribution, or at the very least, U.S. distribution. So at any rate, the second round is Laser Attack. It's two groups of five enemies that dive bomb the player. Uh, There's only one of them that shoots at you, and it shoots kind of like a a straight laser. And um, it comes down, makes a noise, and uh, yeah, all the other enemies just try to dive bomb you. The next screen is Galaxians. Hmm, I wonder what that's like. Oh, Hmm. it's a clone of the arcade game Galaxian, which was also released in the U.S. by Bally Midway, even though it's a Namco game. Again, it's kind of it's scaled down from the uh, arcade original. There's only 24 Galaxians versus 46 in the Galaxian arcade game. Uh, seems to me the sound effects are uh, are the same as Galaxian, but uh, it's been a while since I've actually played the original Galaxian, so I'd have to I'd have to do some more research on that. So notice you said you would have to, not that you will have to. I would have to. I don't. Shut up. Okay. The fourth round is called Space Warp. Enemies basically attack you from a wormhole in the middle of the screen. They appear, and they kind of do some, like, a gigantic spiral circling motion, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until they eventually fly off the screen. 
They shoot down bombs at you, and there are like little dots around where they come out of, and each dot represents one of the enemies that comes out of the middle. Kind of uh, Tempest-like, actually, in, a, in that regard, because Tempest, you'd see the dots in the middle, and they'd come out toward you. That's the only way it's like Tempest. But. Yeah, right. The last round is the flagship. Now, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the first example of a boss character in a video game? I don't know. I wouldn't be... I mean, this is It's a very early example of it. I do know that. Yeah, we're talking 1981, so it very well might be. Basically, the flagship is protected by a shield, like you had in the Astro Battles round. Uh, you must break through the shield and then land a shot in the reactor core of the flagship. The ship does fire back at you, and every shot that hits the flagship without hitting the core dislodges a piece of the ship, which turns into a projectile which can destroy you. Interesting thing there is you can also shoot the ships. Hey, man, let's shoot the ship. Uh, you can shoot the uh, debris from the ship, if you will, for a few extra points. And I will. I was about so, to ask about that. Yes. Every time you destroy the flagship, you go up in rank. And this is interesting. There are six different ranks that you can achieve in this game. The one you start out at is Space Cadet. After the first flagship's destroyed, Space Captain. The next one, Space Colonel. Next one, Space General. The next one, Space Warrior. And the last one is Space Avenger. And the interesting thing is how it keeps track of your rank. It doesn't show it on the screen. But what it does is there's a little panel off to the side, off of the, what is that, the bezel, I guess? And it's painted on there, Space Cadet, Captain, Colonel, General Warrior, Space Adventure, all of that. And it lights up a little light behind it, which is something you don't see in very many arcade games to actually have an additional thing that's, I guess it's not really integral to the gameplay, but um, it's not the kind of thing that you see very often in an arcade game. And you don't even notice it because it happens out of the corner of your eye and it's like, whoa, whoa, what was that? But there is another way that they tell you about your rank. Oh yes, do tell, do tell. It's an early, another early game with voice. Although I think uh. Berserk, uh, Berserk was actually before this one, but it does what about have Stratavox. So, oh yeah, Stratavox, yeah. But it's still one of the earlier voice games. Uh, oh yeah, it, yeah. it is true. And uh, after you destroy the flagship, it's got several different phrases. It says like "Nice shot, you have promoted to space captain." And then your rank for hitting my flagship, flag, flagship, flagship. You have been promoted to in the rank. In the Gorfian Chronicles, you have been promoted to... Next time will be harder, but for now you have been promoted to... Uh, there are other uh, other voices that it says, though, throughout the game. And by other voices, you uh, mean other, other words. words. Yes, 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 yes. Other samples. They're not really samples, though, I don't think. No, no. no wouldn't yeah, be. This, these aren't actual words. Berserk, for example, we talked about how the actual words themselves were synthesized, and it was quite expensive. It cost them something True. like $10,000 a yeah, word or something. Yeah, these weren't samples. These are synthesized, which is a totally yeah, and, different uh, beast. These are all phonemes. They're just different syllables that were manually put together True. in programming. But uh, before you play the game in the attract mode, it will say, for push a player button. And now, was this the game that would say insert coin, or was that mm, another one? I want to think that was, well... Berserk said coin detected in pocket. Right. But I know there was a game, because at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois, that same weekend when I first played Pac-Man and first saw Donkey Kong, in the hallway, there was a video game with speech synthesis that in the attract mode would say, Hmm. I know, I think I know what you're talking about. I wonder if that maybe was Berserk. I don't, you know what, I don't know. 
But there are other things that Gorf says. Um, when the game starts, after you've pushed the start button, it'll say either Prepare yourself for a violation space Or, and these are all, and several of these are followed by your rank. You will meet a Gorfian doom. Survival is impossible. I am the Gorfian Empire. I am a Gorfian consciousness. I'm a Gorfian consciousness, man. Like, whoa. Gorfian robots, attack, attack. Robot warriors, seek and destroy the rank. If you lose a ship, it says, got you, in the rank. Bad move, in the rank. Some galactic defender, you are. Ha! And the rank, well, it doesn't say, ha, I did that for dramatic effect. It does laugh at you. Yes, it does. It goes, ha, 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 ha. Your end draws near. Another enemy ship destroyed. And if you lose your last ship, too bad. And bite the dust. And game over, it'll say, Gorfians conquer another galaxy. Or all hail the supreme Gorfian Empire. And try again, I devour coins. Which I can think of games that deserve that more than this one. But I digress. Some interesting trivia about the game. Oh? The game was actually originally designed, word has it, rumor has it, as a tie-in to Star Trek, the motion picture. If you look, your ship does kind of look like the Starship Enterprise from an above perspective. Yeah. I've heard some people say that the flagship kind of looks like the uh, Enterprise. Mm, not so much, but uh, your ship certainly does. Uh, apparently they said that the script from the movie... Star Trek, the motion picture, just wouldn't work as a video game. Now, who did the uh, Star Trek arcade game? That was Sega. Yeah, because I know it wasn't Midway because uh, Omega Race was their only... Yes, and that was a uh, vector, vector game, game, and they actually got the voice of Leonard Nimoy for that. Yes. And um, it wasn't actually based on a Star Trek movie as much as it was kind of just an original thing with the Star Trek name. Um, right. Because I, I don't think it had anything to do with any of the movies, but... Uh, I don't think so either. It's a fun game. And it, and it was billed as a simulator. Yes, Star Trek... The actual title of the game is Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. Yes. So, uh, should we talk about scoring in the game? Go for it, my good man. Yes. Oh, I'm your, I'm your good man now? Well, I guess I'll take that as a compliment. On the Astro Battle screen, each invader is worth 50 points. Destroying the Gorfian robot that distributes the Space Invaders is 300. Mystery, mystery Saucer is worth 100, and then there's a back-and-forth saucer, which is the same. It just reverses direction halfway through. That one's worth 300 points. Oh, while we're on the subject of this particular minigame, mm -hmm. um, I've never actually tried this myself, but if the invaders actually touch down, is the game over, like in Space Funny invaders? you mention that, because I was trying to test that <laughs> before, the, uh, before the episode tonight, and I turned on a few cheats, but I wanted to try it without doing a cheat. I haven't successfully been able to do that, but it looks to me that if it gets all the way to the lower right-hand corner, that screen is over and you advance to the next screen. Oh, really? Uh, I want to do some more research on that. Uh, I didn't actually get a chance to get that far because there's uh, some weird stuff there, some weird stuff going on there. It, it appears to me that if you get hit by one of the aliens or one of the space invaders when it's in like the lower part of the screen in your area, the play area, that it also advances to the next screen. But I want to check that out a little bit more just to double check that because that's, um, I haven't seen anyone else mention that little tidbit anywhere. And I want to make sure that's not something that happens because of the cheats. I'm pretty sure that it hitting you while it's in your play area does happen. 
Uh, that is a thing because I did that without any cheats on. Uh, one other uh, little thing about scoring in the Astro Battle sequence. If you destroy the Gorfian robot while it's distributing Space Invaders, if you hit a Space Invader while it's being distributed from the Gorfian robot, whether it's destroyed or not, you get 100 points. That's double point, double the normal. So, All right, uh, laser attack screen. The laser ships are 300 each, and the escorts are 100 each. Mm, cheap escorts, the Galaxian screen. All Galaxians that are in the formation are 50 points. Uh, a yellow Galaxian attacking is worth 60, a blue one attacking 80, red attacking is 100, and a flagship that that's attacking is 300. Space Warp, enemy fighters are worth 100 each. Flagship, each hit on the flagship is worth 20 points. Each of the escorts are worth 100 points. That's got to be a later round, because I don't remember there being escorts in there, so that shows you how good I am. Uh, destroying a piece of debris, 150 points. Uh, that's if you hit, you shoot the ship, and then you shoot the piece of the debris that falls off of it. And destroying the flagship is 100 points. And Gorfian robots, which appear randomly throughout the game, are 300 points. Uh, one other interesting thing about this game is it has three lives for one credit, or up to seven, six. For, ad- seven for additional credits. So that's like you can put two in and have six for a game or whatever. I yes. think the default is six. Now, there was never sequels made for this game, but uh, Jamie Fenton, who was Jay Fenton when the game was created, did program Mizgorf. Partially. And uh, still has the source code on 8-inch floppy disks, but because the development system that uh, she was using at the time was really weird, apparently. (laughs) Really weird, esoteric, whatever. And so it'd be... Probably very proprietary, too. Yeah, very proprietary. So it'd be almost impossible to compile it today. Apparently, like, people are trying to uh, come up with a way to do it, but it just hasn't... They just haven't succeeded yet. Now, supposedly, Jamie has a... uh, Has some videotapes somewhere of uh, the gameplay, which I'd be really interested to see. There is video of it on YouTube. I'll post a link to it. Oh, I've got to see that. I, I did not know it made it onto YouTube. I found it today, actually. Oh, oh, definitely. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to watch that in a little while. Now, there were uh, ports for this game. There was Atari 2600, 5200, ColecoVision. It was on the Atari 8-bits. Uh, I believe Commodore made this for the 64 and the VIC-20, the other game, uh, besides Omega Race, which we talked about last time. And then there was a homebrew for the Atari Jaguar, uh, which, uh, Soul Blazer, you're going to have to fill us in on that saga because we couldn't find it anything about it anywhere. I saw a thread about uh-huh. it. It was just a basically more of informational kind of thread. I couldn't find the controversial thing that he was talking about. But So yeah, point us in the right direction. At the very least, give us a link so that we can take a look at it. And we will update the next episode with some addenda and errata if we get this information because I'm curious about it. But um, one last thing on the home ports. Due to copyright issues, uh, the Galaxian's mission was removed from pretty much all of the home ports. Uh, Atari had the home rights to the arcade game Galaxian, and I guess they cut it out because they didn't want any sort of uh, legal issue, which, interesting thing, uh, I don't know why... Here's something about the game that kind of confuses me a little bit. The first round was obviously Space Invaders. There's there's just no way that you can say that it's anything else because the aliens look exactly like the... The ships from Space Invaders, you know? The invaders look like the Space Invaders. Oh, yeah. So it, it's oh, definitely yeah. Space They behave invaders. like them in everything. It is other, other than that, it's Space Invaders in every way. So I guess my question is, why was that not called Space Invaders? Or why was the Galaxians round called Galaxians? And why was that included? And why was the Astro Battles scene included in the home versions? Why were they able to get away with Probably that? Probably because it wasn't called Space Invaders is my guess. 
Which begs hmm. the question, why couldn't they have just called the Galaxian sequence something else unless Namco was more protective of their properties where Taito was not, or as long as the name was different or there was a different understanding, or maybe maybe they had a different contract with Taito than they did with Namco for distributing Space Invaders could and Galaxians. Could be, could be. So that's all interesting questions. Do you have any information on the high scores for the game? Oh, do I ever. Do you? Do I ever? Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, according to the Orcade.com site, uh, well, they have three tracks listed on there. There's a standard ROM, a hard ROM revision, which I wasn't able to find anything about. For both of those, Steve Wagner has the Orcade.com record. Uh, The standard one achieved December 18th, 2009 at Richie Knuckles. The hard ROM version achieved September 17th, 2011, also at Richie Knuckles. Uh, respectively, the scores that he got were 242,420. And this hard ROM revision must be really hard because his score was only 56,610. Hmm. Uh, the six base track, Chris Teeter. Teeter has the record, according to Orcade.com, for the six base variation. Um, he achieved it August 14th, 2013 at Galloping Ghost with a score of 310,360. Twin Galaxies begs to differ big time on uh, two of these tracks. Twin Galaxies doesn't list the hard track, but it does list the three base track and the six base track. For the three base track, it says Keith Swanson, as verified August 3rd, 2011 scored 1,129,660. While for the six base version, John P... And this is interesting because listen to the score. Mm -hmm. John P. McCann in the six base version, his world record verified January 27th, 2011 was 1,153,710. Okay. That's only 24,000 points higher with six bases. So I'm wondering if... The difficulty increases if you start with six bases, which is a two-credit start. I don't think it does. Because that's interesting that he couldn't do more with twice the bases. Unless there's uh, some sort of ramp-up that it's... Uh, I don't know. You know I don't thing. know, but what gets me is that just today I realized that my high score, 27,990, which I achieved January 24th, 2015 at Underground Retrocade... That was for the six bases variation, and I think I always played with just three. I don't think I put two hmm. credits in. Interesting. So, hmm, I'm going to have to double-check that. Uh, 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 wait, wait, wait. What are you going to have to do? I'm going to have to double-check that on Sunday when I go to Underground Retrocade. Because I, I don't remember if it's automatic free play or if it's one of those things where you push a button to, uh, to get the credit to trigger or what. Hmm. But uh, a couple of other tidbits that I just want to mention. Did you mention uh, the design team who developed Gorf? That I did not. David Nutting Associates. David uh-huh. Nutting Associates. I believe we've talked about them before for uh, Quite a another few times. game. But, uh, but I don't remember what game. I know we talked about them before for one game. I don't remember which one it was. Tron? But, uh, it's wor- worth... Me- I th- no. What, did they do Tron or was that the other associate? Was that Marvin Glass? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And something I want to say is that... I've Always heard people getting my uh, belly midway design teams mixed up. Yeah, it's, it's hard to keep track of. But uh, a lot of people complain that you can't understand the speech synthesis. I never had a problem. I'm wondering if that's due to the quality of the speakers in the machine over time, because I was playing it in MAME just before we uh, we recorded. And yes, I have played it in the past, which we'll talk about our first time we've played the game uh, before too long. But I was able to understand it clearly. 
uh, here. In fact, more clearly than uh, some games that we've covered, to be honest. And to be honest with you, I've never played it in MAME. I've only played the actual arcade machine, and I never once had a problem understanding. Okay, seriously, here's what I want to do. Any of you listening, you say, well, you're nuts. There's stuff you can't understand here. I want you to send me a sample. Send me an audio sample of the Gorf voice saying something that seems to be unintelligible. I will tell you what it's saying. So there. Uh, By the way, uh, just another random tidbit to add uh, about Ms. Gorf. Ms. Gorf was programmed using a programming language called Forth. F-O-R-T-H, all capital letters. The Firth of Forth. uh, they're, They're the reason I'm... That there's a reason I'm mentioning that. So suffer and suck So you know what, Jimmy G, brought to you by Summer's Eve. When did you first see and or play Gorf? Tell us about that. Okay, I couldn't really tell you the very first time I've played Gorf. I want to think I've saw it here or there, like in laundromats or whatever. I wouldn't really call this one a laundromat game. Nah, but uh, I would see it like here or there. The one place I think I played it the most. Was I, I don't know if I've mentioned this place. I may have a little dumpy hole-in-the-wall arcade in my neighborhood called Arcade and Keys. I don't remember you mentioning that. It was a guy who, uh, who lived a couple of blocks from me. Uh, him and his, uh, his dad serviced local vending machines, and so they always had like these cases of pop in, their, in the garage or whatever to be taken out to put in the machines. And the son decided to rent out a little space in a dumpy little block building right on US 30 near where I lived. Hmm. And uh, open up this little place called Arcade and Keys. Now, why was it called Arcade and Keys? Well, he had two lines of business. He had like 10 video games, and he also made keys. Hmm. <laughs> Nothing like knowing your customer. Yeah, so, right. uh, say, could you make me a key for these machines so I can pull the tokens out and play for free? Uh, I'm, I'm sure he would have no pr- would have had no problem with that. Of course. But... Um, <laughs> So that was the first time I've, uh, well, not the first time, but my, my, the first place I remember playing it. I know I played it elsewhere before, but that's the first location I remember. And it was um, quite interesting, to say the least. One thing we didn't talk about yet is our personal impressions of the game. Uh, um, excuse me. Um, the host would like to talk about the first time he saw or played ooh, it. Oh, he'd like to talk about his first time? Ah, uh, Yes. Well, actually, I kind of did mention when I might have seen it, but I remember at the Holiday Inn and Bradley walking down the hallway. This is actually not President's Day weekend, 1982, and the game in the attract mode would just say, but again, I've never played Gorf in MAME, so I didn't check before recording, I guess, but uh I don't know where I first actually played it. I know that the first time I ever played a Gorf game of any kind was the Atari 2600 version. I liked it. I liked it despite not having... The thing about Gorf and Berserk, of course, speech synthesis, I even liked it without the speech synthesis. Actually, the speech synthesis kind of makes me mad because it is very mocking. I kind of like that. I like games that mock you like that, like that and Berserk and Frenzy. (laughs) It would be funny if there was like a Wayne's World game and it would say like, yeah, right. I know. stuff like that. Yeah. All right. Now, Jimmy G brought to you by Summer's Eve. Let me ask you something. Yes. Why is it that the same thing that is taunting you is also the one that is responsible for giving you promotions? Hey, you can't win. We're going to beat your ass. Oh, hey, you know what? Here's a promotion. Grudging respect. I don't, I don't know. It's the only thing. And yes, I think it was Carrington Vanston who did bemoan 
a missing rank. There is a rank on there that is just painfully missing that they should have had. Oh? What are the different ranks? Space cadet, space captain, space colonel. What is obviously missing? Space private. Even more obvious than that. What do some people call you? Jim? What else do they call you besides, say, gangster of love? Some may call me Tim. And I'm sure some people call you Maurice. Because I speak of the pompatus of love. Space commander? Hmm. All right, I'm not following here. You are effing ki- that That's it, you're dead to me. Was I ever alive? Space cowboy! There's no oh, space cowboy. Oh, gosh, you were leading me that direction. Why didn't I think about that? Oh, my lord. And then they should have a super secret rank of Steve Miller. Space Steve Miller. Space Steve Miller. Because <laughs> yeah, all the ranks are space something or other. But no space cowboy. Come on, W-T actual F. Okay, yes. Space cowboy. I, I really don't know for sure where I actually first played the arcade version, but I know that obviously all my recent playings have been in Underground Retrocade. And I play it mm-hmm. every time I go there, and I just can't seem to break, like, the 20,000s. I can't. I'm pretty sure I've actually scored higher than, than this I th- I recently, but I just didn't record it for some reason. But, oh, well. I couldn't tell you my high score. It was My, my high score today was something like 5,400. Uh, I, I didn't do really well on it at all. So, let's talk about... Well, you're the host. What the hell am I doing? I'm stepping on your toes. Ow! Damn it. Yeah, you don't use that toe anyway. We haven't talked about our personal impressions of the game. Here's my personal impression of Gorf. I am the Gorfian consciousness. Was that, how was that? Was that a good impression? Um, I like how this voice is kind of this like wimpy, nerdy kind of thing. Like It's not threatening like in Berserk. It's more like kind of almost Urkel-like. <laughs> I was thinking more Torgo-ish. I take care of the place while the Gorfians are away. I can see that. I am Space Torgo. I take care of the galactic orbiting robot force while the masters are away. The space masters away. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, if I could ever figure out how to hack graphics, you'd have, (laughs) instead of the ship on the bottom, you'd have Torgo and shooting with his little hand staff. Oh, gosh, I, th- I, th- I think we're on to a winner here. Let's call our agent. Hey, Charlie! You can hack the 2600 version. I know you've done at least one 2600 graphics yes, hack Yes, I before. have. Yes, I have, and I am working on a 7800 hack, too. But one thing I have to say about this game, the games from this era, from Bally Midway, had the most awesome explosions in both sight and sound. Gorf is no different. The, <laughs> your ship blowing up is actually... For some reason, it's very, very satisfying, even though that's something you don't want to see. <laughs> Subgalactic Defender, you are. I hate the explosion in Gorf, actually. It's just something, the tone of it is so grating. It's like, yeah! Oh, I love it! I, I, I just think it's, I just love the the way that the explosion looks. I love the sound of it, which it's it's actually the same explosion for the, uh, for the flagship, actually. I just think it's just amazing. It's just... Overall, the sound in this game is just, I think, amazing. I just absolutely love the sound in this, the explosions, the different sound effects, the dive bombing of the Galaxians, the uh, distributing of the space invaders, I, I, I mean the astro battlers, the shooting of the laser by the uh, 
laser attack screen, the enemies appearing out of the space warp. I just absolutely love the sound effects in this game. It's got some of the most awesome sound effects. Visually, this game is excellent, but I have two problems with the visuals in this game. The first problem I have is in the uh, Astro Battles. Is it in the Astro Battles? I know it's in the Galaxian screen, where the bullets that the Galaxians shoot at you are almost invisible. You really got to be looking for yeah. them. It's just like one pixel by one pixel bullets. Uh, you can barely, barely see them. You can see them, but you can barely see them. And since they're kind of like a, a, a medium red color against a black background, which I believe had stars, they're almost kind of hard to distinguish sometimes. For the most part, the Galaxian screen is, isn't that terrible, at least the first go-round. But the biggest problem I have is for the first screen, the Astro Battles, that is a horrible color combination. That, that light blue background makes the first level almost unplayable, in my opinion. Do you know why they made that a light blue background? Uh, because they wanted to hurt me personally. Yes, that's exactly why. I mean, I read that they did that because it was supposed to be implied to not take place in space. So it's more like just a regular old sky. But you're right. It is because they wanted to hurt you. I mean, it's understandable if you want to make sure it's not in space. But don't start the game off with that. This is something I just thought about. Is it possible that Midway was possibly prepared for a lawsuit from using space invaders? And they're like, oh, this isn't space invaders. See, it's a daylight sky. I think that there would have been some... The actual look of the space invaders, I think, would have tipped off lawyers. I don't think the background color would have done anything. I've, I don't think that that would have been an issue. But to what I'm saying about that, you don't start the game off with that color... Look at the arcade game Missile Command, another one we've yet to talk about. There is a light blue and a bright yellow screen eventually in the game, but those are seven, eight, nine, ten levels into the game. They're not right off the bat. Right. And I think that should be something that should be played for difficulty. The first level's Missile Command, well, doesn't necessarily take place on Earth, but they do take place on a planet, but it starts you off at night, which I think that they should have done that with this because the color contrast between like the red and green and yellow, whatever, of the space invaders, let's just call them what they are, space invaders, really hurts the eyes against the light blue. Yeah. That having been said, it doesn't hurt my enjoyment of the game, though. Those are really the only two nitpicks I have about this game. I think the difficulty of the game is just fine. The only way the game could be made better, the two things that make the bullets on the Galaxian screen a little bit bigger so you can see them easier and make the uh, background of the Astro Battle screen a different color. There's only two things, but it's still, like I said, it doesn't detract from the fun I have playing this. This is a fun game. I really like this game. So how many continues would you uh, rate it? You know, I was originally going to rank it a four, because it had been a while since I had played it, and I remembered yeah, thinking it was okay, but then I played it a little bit a couple days ago and a little bit today, and I'm like, Okay, this game is a lot more fun than I remember it being. And those two nitpicks aside, I'm going to give this game a five. Um, wow. I think if we went into decibels, it'd be maybe like a 5.1, whereas a, like Tempest would be like wow. a 5.8. But uh, yeah, I'm giving this a five. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for this because Gorf, I enjoy the game. It's a game that I like, but I don't love. But then the more I talk about it, the more I realize there's a lot to it that's there to like. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, me personally, I'm not going to play this multiple times. I'm going to play it once, and I'm going to walk away. And I think simply for that, I'm going to say three, but just barely missing a four. But my thing with Gorf 
is I think the one area it really shines in is unlike a lot of other games, is it has a lot of variety. I think there's a lot more bang for the buck in Gorf than there is in most games when it comes to variety. Yeah, I mean, it's your standard aliens attacking you, but there's each level's got something different, a little bit something, well, I said different already, but the formula's changed up a little bit with each, with each screen, and I think that increases the replay value of this game. And uh, that's, I think, the main reason why I really like this game a lot. Anyway, yeah, I guess that's... Uh... I guess it's Gorf. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So. Well, you know what? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Uh-oh. Um, have you played any of the home versions of it? I played the 2600 version of it, but that's it. I remember I have played a little bit of, I've played the 2600. In fact, I played that a little bit before recording tonight. I never owned it way back in the Ferg. I have in the past played some of the Jaguar version. The Jaguar version is really spot on. I really liked it, but I didn't get a chance to really do much with it uh, as far as, you know, different variations or difficulty settings or what have you. I always thought it interesting that way back when, when uh, CBS uh, came out with their electronics division and came out with video games for the, for the Atari, their spokesman, who was their spokesman? Uh, the Beatles. <laughs> John Madden, the football mm-hmm. announcer guy. And he was talking about how tough Solar Fox and Gorf were and, you know, the contests and all of that and and talking about the challenge of the game. So it's interesting to see him tied to non-football video games uh, very, very early on in uh, video game history, uh, home video sure. game history, that is. So I just, I just thought that was uh, quite the interesting thing. Now, CBS Games had, like, contests with their games where after you... Uh, went through a certain number of levels, you'd get a letter on the screen, it would reveal a phrase, and you could send the phrase in, well, well letters, but then you had to unscramble it for the, the secret word, you send it in, you win big money, big prizes, I love it. And um, I don't think Gorf had the letters, but I do know Solar Fox did, and uh, what was one of their other games that had it? Um, what's one I owned? Uh, Blueprint. I know Blueprint had it, but that was a thing with their arcade conversions. Uh, might have just been those two games now that I think about it. Might have been. Yeah, I always thought that interesting that John Madden's first foray into video games was uh, was nothing to do with football. And seeing as I don't like football, good on him. So, anyway. All right. Um, All right. So, are we ready to uh, rate our next game? <laughs> we could do this. We could do this one of two ways. We could do it the hard way, or we could do it the easy way. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. So, now say the name. The name. There, no, now say what? the name of the game. Oh. You know what it is. Come on. Oh, the name of the game is Professor Goddamn Pac-Man. Yay, Professor Goddamn Professor Pac-Man. Pac-Man. So, yeah, Professor Pac-Man, yes. This is another <sighs> unlicensed Pac-Man. Pac-Man game from Bally oh, Midway, who had a, quite a... Fun with unlicensed Pac-Man games, which yeah. why they got in trouble with Namco. Uh, it's basically it, it, a let, logic let me, let, let slash me. memory puzzle game. Let, let, let me let me handle this one. Okay, go let right me for it. This one. All right, this game sucks. Period. End of story. Period. Thank you, everybody. But why? But why? You see, you can't just come up here all right, all right, and, all right, claiming right. that you have a bit to stare in the in the body department. The point is, our listeners need proof. Okay, fine, fine. All right, here. Let, let me let me tell you about this game, quote unquote there, game. Did you see what I just did there? Uh, Jimmy G brought to you by Summer's Eve. I, I did not actually. I did, I did finger quotes. Oh, that's I, around I the word game because those work yeah. very good on a podcast. Yeah. 
Professor Pac-Man. Don't worry, folks. This part won't be long. That's what she said. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's what she didn't say at all. <laughs> I guess it depends on the context. Ha, 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 ha. Professor Suckman was released probably August 12th, 1983, possibly September 1983, but it was... Eh, possibly just, in our nightmare. Let's just say roughly Q4 1983. And it was designed by Rick Frankel with Mark Stephen Pierce and Sue Foreigner on the graphics and Mark Cantor on audio. What else do we know about Mark Cantor, by the way? He went on to found the bane of the modern internet, Macromedia. Yeah, yeah, the which Flash was formerly player. known as Macromind. Uh, Mark Cantor founded that with Mark Stephen Pierce and with Jamie Fenton, by the way. Uh huh. And the reason I mentioned before about Ms. Gorf being written in fourth, that almost Gorf rhymes, is that Professor Pac Man was also written in fourth. And uh, you sure it, was it wasn't the written last... while they were drunk on a fifth. Probably. It, w- it would have had to have been. Makes sense. Professor Pac-Man was the last of seven games to be programmed on the Bally Astrocade hardware. Ooh. Ooh. And as far as I know, they never actually ported it to the uh, Astrocade. I'm sure Chris Plus Plus will be happy to um, come back to us with that. But uh, do you know uh, where the idea for this game came from? No, I don't. But I think there's actually some... uh... Well, you know what? Enlighten me. Ah, enlighten you. With enlighten Professor me. Pac-Man. Because you know what? It's fun to learn from Professor Pac-Man. That's what it says on the on the uh, flyer. Well, and just has... like they say that uh, they changed the name of basic math on the Atari 2600 to fun with numbers. That's... Indeed they did. And not only that, but uh, the way that that sentence is written on the flyer, it's written in script, except for the word fun, which is written in all uppercase letters and underlined twice. So it's almost like they're trying to like brainwash you. It's fun into playing with Professor Pac-Man. What's interesting is the idea came from a guy named Johnny Lott. Do you know who Johnny Lott is? Wasn't he the founder of a of a punk band, Johnny Lotten? Or I don't think so, Tim. Oh, he was a world championship foosball player of all things. He ah. and a guy named Ed Adlam, not to be confused with Ed Ladden. Or Ed Asner. He was the publisher of Replay. They got together and approached Bally Midway with the idea to come up with this Professor Pac-Man game, and Bally went back to them and said, yeah, we're not interested. And you know what happened? It was shown at a, uh, an amusement operator's show, and yep. the other guys happened to be there, and they yep. sued? Well, Johnny Lott was there. He didn't actually sue, but he threatened to sue but uh, what happened was midway was like well you know what how about we uh, give you royalties and the guy's like okay 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 they couldn't have made very much for reasons that we'll get into think about this though that was a good idea you know why john travolta when he did grease and saturday night fever when they were negotiating his pay he said look all i want is scale which is basically minimum wage and a cut of the soundtrack sales That was his pay for both of those movies. And he made out like a bandit. Oh, good Lord. So that's, in my eyes, that's why Johnny Lott came up with this. So that's why he probably settled for royalties. Sometimes this is a brilliant idea. This will make me rich. (laughs) But he um, says as he strokes his curly mustache. Yep, of course. Um, And possibly to avoid the lawsuit, what actually came out with Professor Pac-Man was a little bit different from what uh, Johnny and Ed came up with. I understand it was actually 
uh, significantly different than the original idea. Well, yeah, the original idea was a little bit closer to how Pac-Man, the, the rest of the Pac-Man series, was going to be with some trivia interspersed in it. Or, yeah, like, like I believe uh, Pac-Man would eat the questions, and you had to like answer the questions before the Pac-Man ate them or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of like it would how be interesting. The, I, if there was ever a prototype of that made, it would be interesting to see. It really would be. But again, who would have made it? Because Bally wasn't interested. Bally Midway wasn't interested. Oh, of course not. But um, hey, who knows? Well, well, then again, they still could have done something uh, based on the original idea. Now, as far as I can tell, every source I could find said that there were 400 Professor Pac-Man machines made. Uh, actually, one source claims that there were 700, but it might be that someone was using the numeric keypad was just a row off and hit seven instead of four. The common lore is that 300 of those 400 machines were returned to Midway because nobody wanted to play the damn thing. So what happened to those 300 returned Professor Suckmans? Well, um, many, if not all of them, what happened to them? Let me think here. They were trans, they were converted, converted. I'm seeing the word converted, converted. to another so what, game, to Islam another or game, or I'm, I'm something, that, something that begins with a P, 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 Protestant to a Peck, peck. They're converted to Protestants. I'm getting, I'm getting another letter, 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 letter. You over here on this side of the audience, uh, is there a game over here whose second word has an L in it? An L, an L, an L, an L, an L, L. Yes, my my the second n- n- word in my game has an L. What is it? In, uh, let me guess, it's uh, it's land. Yes, it's Packland. Yeah, they were all converted, like 300. A majority of them, a huge majority of the machines were rumored to have been converted to Packland. That would have been interesting because Packland is entirely buttons. It's player one, player two, two jump buttons, and this two directional all buttons. buttons. Yeah. The uh, hardware was much, much different, however. It so was. they basically just basically used the shell of the machine and tossed out the insides. Yeah, I would like to see. I've, I've never seen a Pac-Land that was converted from a Professor Pac-Man, because you can tell a converted Professor Pac-Man because it would have the Professor Suckman side art on it but i've never seen one of those so i'm wondering if they left the buttons intact so they wouldn't have to change the control panel because that would be interesting i would think they'd have to change the control panel out the thing is the professor Suckman control panel still has the same number of buttons they're just different types of buttons mm-hmm. because you have three buttons per player that's six buttons right there right but does a Pac-Land have three left right jump Pac-Land has player one start, player two start, so that's two buttons right there. Well, I, le- no, I don't I don't count the start buttons, because this, this game does have start buttons, too. Yeah, I guess it would have to. Well, they, they, eventually, the arcade uh, companies figured out that they didn't need start buttons. I want to yeah. think the first game I ever saw that didn't have a start button, or rather a start button that was assigned to a regular gameplay button was an Atari game. Crystal Castles? Uh, no, I think Crystal Castles still had, still had that. Um... I could be wrong. You'll have to check. I want to think it was an Atari game, but I can't think of a specific name at this time. But anyway, oh, correction, you are right, though. Now, thinking about it, uh, Crystal Castles didn't have an individual uh, one- and two-player start. It was mapped to the jump buttons, because Crystal Castles had two jump buttons, one on either side of the trackball. Right. I found this on Internet Movie Database, believe it or not. They had an entry for Professor Suckman for some reason. Hmm? There's a little trivia bit about how 400 were made and 300 were converted after they were sent back. It says, because of this, Professor Suckman machines are rare. This does not make them valuable, however, as many collectors (laughs) still do not want them. Yeah, I know. For that reason alone, I would like to have one of these. (laughs) It'd probably be easy to get one. 
And the nice thing is, it wouldn't be that terrible expensive to get one. But the, the great thing is, is, you could hollow it out and put whatever you want in it. So there's a, yeah. there's a good reason to have a Professor Pac-Man machine. There is a user on one of the Facebook forums. I don't know if it's uh, one of the retro gaming forums or if it's Atari Age's Facebook forum. But there's a user whose profile picture is her standing next to a Professor Pac-Man machine that appears to be in her living room. Oh, nice. So it's like, oh, oh one thing we didn't thing. mention... Um, when we were talking about the how 400 were made and uh, most of them were sent back, rumor has it that there's only the uh, the remaining Professor Pac-Man machines today number only in the low double digits. Yeah, so. which is low double digits too many. But anyway, the way that this, if you want to call it a game, the way that this game what you appears, gotta do. there are allegedly 500 questions. And the original plan was that the questions would be rotated in and out, so you just couldn't memorize the questions. The, the questions are either all memory or logic puzzles, for the yeah. most part. I've, there's no, like, historical trivia no, no, it's, it's uh, not or like, math or anything. It's yeah, all it's more logic like puzzles brain, or memory. It's, it's like brain exercises, really. Right. But um, it turns out they didn't need to do that because no one wanted to play this stupid piece of crap, which has stereo sound, by the way. So they didn't have to put out new sets of questions that they would like switch in and out now and then. And also, as part of the original plan, they were going to put out three different versions of Professor Suckman. Uh, there was the public version, which they were supposed to put in bars. Which I believe that's actually the version that was released. Yeah, which is weird because you would think, because the thing is, the version that was actually released, it's very ageless, really. Anybody can play the thing. Do you think that something aimed at bars would be a little bit more challenging, maybe with a little bit more like age-related humor or something? But no, it's pretty tame in every regard. Uh, there was going to be a family version for younger players, which I thought this was, but no, it's not. To be fair, some of the visual puzzles in it kind of throw me off a little bit. And the other version was going to be a prizes version. Um, I wasn't able to find much info about that other than it was going to be in casinos. I don't know if that was going to be like some kind of redemption game or what. You know what? I could actually see this working as a redemption thing, but only if questions were swapped out because it would be real easy to memorize a lot of the stuff on here, I would think. Oh, yeah. If it was released today, I could see like uh, the Chuck E. Cheese or, you know, sure. redemption places like that sure. having this and they could download different questions on a daily basis, basically, and, uh, you know, go from there and have a good uh, redemption thing. But, uh, yeah, that was a pain in, would have been a pain in the ass back then. And thinking about it, well, you know what? Let's, let's continue on with this because yeah. I'm going to continue with my thought a little bit later. Okay. If we recall back to when we talked about Ms. Pac-Man, one of the things that I had mentioned about Ms. Pac-Man was that Namco wasn't too thrilled that Midway came out with Ms. Pac-Man without their knowledge, without uh, Namco's approval. Uh, One of the reasons they weren't too thrilled about it was that it was basically not much different from Pac-Man in terms of gameplay. It's still, you eat all the dots in a maze, you chase the monsters after you eat an Energizer, and that's the basic gameplay. They said, well, if you really want to have a sequel, there's got to be something considerably different about it, which is why Super Pac-Man was kind of different. Well, so of course you would think, hey, Bally Midway is going to put out another Pac-Man sequel, how could they possibly go wrong by making it considerably different to make it a good, solid sequel? Well, you couldn't get further from the Pac-Man formula than with Professor Suckman. I would have rather seen a Pac-Man like Space Invaders or Galaxian shoot him up. 
Ooh, that'd be an interesting one. But the don't thing know is, how you could do it. But I would thinking about it though. Pac Man was in the arcade game Kick Man as a, an integral part of the game, or Kick as it's called sometimes. Hmm. Never saw it. That's an interesting game. We need to talk about it. Never, never I think they have it. it at Galloping Ghost. Huh. To, Although the last time I was there, I think it wasn't working. But but anyway, anyway, but anyway, this is the only Pac-Man game in which your character is not a Pac-Man character. Instead, you, well, your character isn't even represented on the screen. You That's are true. the Professor Pac-Man is asking you questions. Yes, you are the pupil. The professor is basically Pac-Man with a mortarboard and half-moon specs. That really. having been said, though, the character of Professor Pac-Man does appear in the Pac-Man World series of games for various consoles. And what happens is uh, the professor stands behind a podium, and you are given multiple-choice questions that basically involve visual logic. You have a one-in-three chance of getting the question right if you, know, if you do it randomly. Because you only got yeah. three buttons. And for many of the questions, you get a second chance, but it still basically reduces one of your turns. You get three turns. I don't want to say lives, because you don't really die. You lose a fruit. You lose a fruit? Yeah. I thought the fruit your, just your, indicates your, your, your level. Your tries are represented by fruit at the top of the screen. So what happens? Like, if you're at the strawberry level, like if like you'll be demoted to cherry or something? No, you just lose a fruit. You have, like, five cherries or whatever, however many you have. You get a question wrong, you lose a cherry. Huh. Well, it shows you how much I paid attention to this to this uh, thing. You may have analogy questions. Like uh, one that I saw that kept coming up was you have a picture of a foot that's about to kick a football. And here's something that I did with this. As I mentioned this before, but I teach some test prep courses every now and then for college entrance tests, like the GRE and those kind of things. And uh, one of the things we used to teach when analogies were on these tests, they're not on the tests anymore is that if you have an analogy, what you do is you make a sentence out of the things that are being compared. And I use that same strategy for Professor Suckman. So I would say, okay, the foot is used to kick the ball. I don't remember what the uh, actual answer was, but that's what I, that's the strategy I used for the answer choices. I said, okay, so what else is used to do this? So I just said, okay, well, answer choice A, eh, that's not really used for anything. It's not used to do anything. Oh, B is something that is used to do something, so I'm going to pick B. And I was right, of course. One because question of my... I had come up a few times when I was playing this, it would show like a car key, a keychain, a map of oh, Florida, yeah. and a tree. Which one doesn't belong? Well, it's the tree. You know, yep. keychain, Florida keys, the yeah. car key. I actually like that question because usually the uh, the one that doesn't belong was the one at the last. So I just had my finger right on that one so that as soon as it let you answer, I would have the 900 points. <laughs> but um, the other kind of questions you'll see, and uh, this, this is kind of something that Jimmy G brought to you by Summer's Eve. Uh, was talking about was you may have like a memory kind of thing where the the one that I could not stand was when they gave you a row of apartment buildings. Oh God, yes, I know exactly. God yep. knows what what they were going to be asking you. They could tell be you to you, study them. Yeah, they tell you to study. And you get them. like two seconds to study them. Yeah, two seconds to study them, and the picture goes away, and then it says, "Okay, how many of these kinds of windows were in there?" It's like, are you effing kidding me? Yeah. And you can't say it was the larger building because the larger building doesn't necessarily have all of those windows. And I think I got one question where it asked me about which one had this specific window. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, when it asked about the number of windows, I always went with the larger building just because, I mean, yeah, it's kind of the dumb way to do it. But Theoretically I it right. makes sense. 
I always got it right though. They also like to show you this, like a series of still pictures of dancing ladies. And then they'll ask you, okay, which one had her leg up in the air or something like that? It's like, oh my, are you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, you might, you might have to pick out which figure is identical to the one that's on the screen, which to be honest is, is, I found those to be very, very difficult. Cause like what you were saying before, how it might be just one pixel off. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, come on, really? But yeah, um, some of the questions don't, didn't seem to be very fair to me. No, no. And uh, there's one thing that does kind of harken back to the Pac-Man formula. The question that asks how many left turns or how many right turns are being made here. And then it'll show you an animation of Pac-Man going through the Pac-Man maze and eating dots. And you have to count uh-huh. how many times Pac-Man makes a left turn or right turn. And what's really creepy. I don't think I encountered any of those particular questions. Oh, I'll bet you you did. But the thing is, they're so traumatic that you probably repressed them from your memory. <laughs> so you know what happens with these things? What happens is you see a three-dimensional Pac-Man with arms and legs. You know, just he just walks over to that maze. Then he removes his head from his body. And the head turns into the two-dimensional Pac-Man from all the previous games. Kind of a Friday the 13th thing going that's kinda, on there. That's kind of creepy. I was like, Ugh. No blood or anything. It makes it even creepier. We should probably talk about how the scoring happens in the game, how you score points in this game. Yes. Uh, if, you, if you've ever played a bar trivia game, like you ever go to trivia night at a bar, it's kind of similar to that in that you're given a certain amount of time, and the sooner you answer the question correctly, the more points you score. And uh, why don't you tell the kind people, all two of them, um, how that timer works? It's basically Pac-Man, and he's munching down dots. That's your timer. And you need to answer the question before he gets all the way to the furthest right dot. Yeah. I think it starts out at like 1,000 or 900 points or something. It goes down from there. Yeah, 900 and it goes down from there. You don't want to reach the end or else you lose a fruit, as it were. And there are some questions in which you can earn twice as many points. Like, say, if you answered right away, instead of 900, you get 1,800. Those are the bonus questions. Oh, I forgot about those. There's one thing that I actually do like about this, is if you get a question wrong, the professor will do a facepalm. Yeah, that is kind of cute. That is. And I do like when you get a question right, it kind of gives you kind of like a fractal or whatever image yeah. or whatever. In fact, when you power the game on or load it up in MAME and start running it, it gives you a couple of those in the attract mode, which are pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's pretty common with uh, a lot of uh, Midway games, I think. But, uh, I could be wrong. I've been wrong once. Granted, that once was for a very long time, but still. Of course. Allegedly, you are asked 99 questions, and after the 99th question, you reset back to the first question. I don't know if that means that you get the same set of questions or if it just says, okay, now here's question number one. They give you a new question. I'm not really sure because I haven't played this damn game long enough to be able to get there, and I do not plan to. So there. Oh, and by the way, as you progress through the game and get to that 99th question, you'll find that the time you are given to answer the questions gets progressively shorter. Makes sense. That actually does begrudgingly make sense. And of course, you're allowed up to three mistakes, losing up to three fruits. And once you lose all your fruit and you make all the mistakes you're allowed to make, the game is over. And this is another creepy thing about the game. When the game is over, it basically shows you a first-person view of the schoolhouse you were in, but it's nighttime and the moon is shining, 
and you see a silhouette of the professor waving at you. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> because really, how often are you in school for that long that you come out of school and it's dark out? Winter. No. But there's no snow on the ground, though. There's no. It doesn't matter. Even in the winter, it was still, the sun was still out. What if you had detention? If you had detention, I don't think you're going to be like answering stupid questions. Like, well, then again, this would be a good. Well, you've form never of been to detention, have you? The only times I ever got detention was in high school, and it was because I was like two seconds late for class, and they called it jug. What was jug? They made you sit in a classroom for half an hour and just sit down, staring forward, and that was it. I had a few after-school detentions for not doing my homework. And I served a, I believe, a week-long in-school suspension for cutting gym class. Ah. I would rather be in the library than in gym. At least in the library, nobody picked on me. (laughs) Anyway. Awkward! (laughs) But anyway, um, going back to the whole thing about how Namco wasn't too thrilled with... uh, Bally for using the Pac-Man character in so many unauthorized games, which, by the way, I seem to remember hearing on Tenpence not too long ago that Ms. Pac-Man wasn't quite as unauthorized as the common lore says it to be. I want to, I, I got to go back and listen to that episode again, see what, uh, see what they said about that. But uh, obviously, Namco was very unappreciative of Professor Pac-Man, and very well may have been the proverbial straw. The proverbial straw. By the way, what proverb actually has a straw in it? Proverbs 245. I'll have to look that up in my concordance and see where where straws mentioned in the book of Proverbs. But uh, anyway. um, Oh, it was translated from the original Latin. There you go. Namco was none too pleased with Bally for Professor Pac-Man, especially after you had all this baby Pac-Man, junior Pac-Man, and um, and all that good stuff and bad stuff or whatever. Pa- exciting new Pac-Man Plus, which oh, yeah, is uh, Galloping Ghost's latest edition, as we're recording this, by the way. That's true. So that this game. may very well have been the cause of Namco to break their contract with Midway, saying, you know what, you're no longer distributing the Pac-Man games. We're going to let Atari do that from now on. No pack for you. What is interesting about that is, what were you saying before about uh, Professor Suckman and later appearances? Yeah, he's appeared in later Namco games, albeit he did have a mustache in the games. Yeah, yeah. In the well, Pac-Man you know, time series. has passed. He probably decided to stop shaving. Yeah, he was in Pac-Man World, Pac-Man World 2. He basically uh, appeared as the person who told you what you need to do, how to control the game. You know, your tutor or tutorial pack, as it were. Yeah, kind of like your mentor or something. But he was in Pac-Man World, Pac-Man World 2, and Ms. Pac-Man Maze Madness. I think he was in a few of the cartoons as well. Yeah, he was. Uh, there was a character called Sir Cumference. I see what they did there. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures cartoon, that had a resemblance to the Professor character. But uh, something that I had read, and I wasn't able to pinpoint where this actually happened, but apparently in one of the later Namco games, the Professor was either implicitly or explicitly Ms. Pac-Man's father. Which just uh-huh. adds more to the creepiness. Yeah, trying to date my daughter, huh? That's well, yeah, smart, it's, it's yeah. A little bit of inbreeding in Pac-Land is there? <laughs> Pack and saw. Good lord. Good lord. Now, boop, if boop, I could just boop, make boop, a Pac-Man boop, boop, pun boop, out of Wilmington. Hey, now. Braidwood? Braidwood? I thought it was Wilmington. Uh, the inbreeding is in Braidwood. Oh. Huh. You sure about that? Wilmington is where people die from venturing too close to the dam. The dam what? 
the damn damn. Oh, okay. Jean-Claude but, uh, damn damn. But uh, do you have anything to add about Professor Suckman? Well, I like some of the sound effects. And oh, who that, doesn't? That the visual I was talking about before was kind of cool. But, yeah, other than that, no, not really. Do we have scores? There's only one score registered for Professor Pac-Man at Twin Galaxies, and that was from Greg Gunter, verified December 9th, 1983, with a score of 999,990. Which I guess means that the score doesn't... uh, Roll. Doesn't roll. Fascinating. Arcade.com. Now, this is the fun thing here. Arcade.com doesn't have any scores whatsoever listed, but it lists only one location for Professor Uh Pac-Man, and that is a place in Houston called Joysticks, J-O-Y-S-T-I-X, Classic Games and Pinballs. Hmm. And from what I can tell, I actually was on their website, and I saw they do have a Professor Pac-Man listed there. They're actually kind of a combination arcade slash arcade game selling place like a dealer like it's an arcade but you go in and play you can actually buy the machine it's like an arcade but different and i have to put a link to their uh professor pac-man sale page because they're trying to hype it up it's like this is a rare cabinet you know it says for the price it says dollar sign call (laughs) 20 bucks yeah that's about 40 bucks too much but uh, (laughs) but anyway um i've never played the real machine you know why because well, I'll get to that later, but I've only played this in MAME, and my highest score in MAME is 16,290. Yeah. I couldn't tell you what my high score was. I just didn't really care. Uh, whoa. Ooh, I didn't even have any beans for dinner. Um, I couldn't tell you what my high score is. Uh, I did actually play this in the arcade. They did have it at the Aladdin's Castle in the Louis Joliet Mall for oh, a short God, time. Oh, they had it too? They had it, and I played it like three, maybe possibly four times. Uh, and I played it a couple of times in MAME over the last week, and I was actually, well, I'm just going to go into my score here, but should, should, should we, we might as well segue into our scores. What do you think? Our rating. I'm sorry, our rating. Well, I should talk about when I saw it, when I first saw it, yeah, slash played this. I first saw Professor Suckman at the Aladdin's Castle at the Lincoln Mall. In uh, Matson, Illinois. And before I saw it there, my brother had mentioned it. He's like, they got a game called Professor Pac-Man over there. I was like, you're kidding me. He said, no, check it out. And I looked. And my first thought was, I'm given a dollar to play games every time we come to this mall. I'm not wasting a token on this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You don't go to the arcade to learn. Exactly. Yeah, I watched the attract mode, and it's like, okay, okay, I'm not paying a, a damn token to match pictures Mm -hmm. what really kills me is that aladdin's castle at one point had a game called pac-man and chomp chomp which i learned decades later that was actually pac and pal slightly hacked they had that one time when i went back it was gone and replaced with pac-land but professor pac-man never left that damn arcade as long as i'd been going there it stayed there does not surprise me that arcade had it because that was a huge arcade it was, but why did they keep that but get rid of Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp? That is the question for the ages, my friend. And I have a theory on that that I'll talk about when we talk about pac and Pal eventually. You know, I almost wonder if the whole Professor Pac-Man thing was a direct response to the uh, outcry from parents about 
the evils of video games. Uh, that's nothing new. I mean, you get it, you know, with the with your horror games like your Silent Hills, and then you get yeah. with your bloody games and and whatnot. But this has always been a thing. It's nothing new. It started almost from the day Pong came out, and um, the game Death Race two thousand, where you're running over people. Well, actually, it was just Death Race, but it was loosely based on the movie Death Race two thousand. But since then. People always looking for a scapegoat, always looking for, you know, some way to <laughs> control the fun of games or whatever. And I'm wondering if this was just a response just to prove that, well, video games could have uh, educational uh, value or whatever. I mean, parents and the government and, you know, it f- people with their forced morality trying to do, you know, do crap like this. Uh, I heard something to something today. I haven't read the story that uh, the government of Milwaukee County in Wisconsin is trying to restrict people playing Pokemon Go without a license. What? What can, license? Something that I haven't read the whole story what yet. I've only seen of... the headline, but but I mean, it's just you know, it's 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 ridiculous. And this, I think, I my opinion was a direct response to the outcry to to pander to the moralists of the time. And I'm getting off my little soapbox now. Well, I'm, I'm thinking it might be a little bit that, but it might also be because that's right around the time when there was a big outcry about, say, like educational TV shows. And that's when Saturday mornings were getting to be less fun. And that's and now when sleeping you started hearing, and knowing is half the battle. <sighs> and that's when they took all the explosions and anvils falling on people's head out of Bugs Bunny. Good grief. I, mean, I have <sighs> never once dropped an anvil on people's heads. Recently, yeah, me too. It's you know, it's, it's been a, at least a, a a week. Yeah, at the very least for me too. I mean, yeah, but I, it's it's just basically becoming like how society feels that our kids need to be in a constant state of learn with absolutely no freaking freedom whatsoever from learn, 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 learn. Summer reading, summer reading, more homework, more homework. <laughs> I, I hate it in school. When they told us, when they assigned us books that we had to read, I really ever ended up enjoying one of those books, and it was Of Mice and Men. To Kill a Mockingbird for me. Yeah, they didn't force us to read that one, but I, I do recall they forced us to read a book called Snowbound in two different classes. Oh, I hated wow. that book. I, I couldn't right. make it through it. If anything, I would rather they would have forced us to write stories all the time instead of reading stories, but... There you go. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for education and everything, but for God's sakes, you got to give people a break, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, that's that's my soapbox but moment. Uh, it's courtesy of Professor Suckman. Let's let's go into our ratings for this game. Let's wrap okay. this up because I think Suckman. we really want to wrap it up. I was actually going to originally rate the game a two uh, because oh. I kind of liked some of the sound effects and I did like that kind of little graphic thing. But the more we talked about it, the more I'm like thinking, yeah, this pretty much sucks. <laughs> because of the reasons we described before, with some of the puzzles being pixel perfect and not having long enough time to memorize some of the screens so yeah this game sucks uh, i would give it a zero if i could i'm giving it a one which is the absolute lowest possible see i hate when people say i'd give this a zero if i could yeah and guess what if the if you could give a zero you'd say i'd give it a negative if i could you're still giving it the lowest possible conceivable rating can i give, give it a lobotomy go right ahead be my guest awesome but, uh, the only thing is our, our show notes page won't allow for a lobotomy rating. Oh, but I haven't, I haven't added our ratings to the show notes page in weeks, so we're way out of date with that. Uh-uh. But I, w- I was originally going to give Professor Suckman a one, again, because 
when I saw this at Lincoln Mall and I was like, I'm not sacrificing a quarter, a token for this. And think about this. Your strategy for a high score is to memorize the, the questions, really? If that's got to be the strategy, then you know what? I'm going to stick with my original idea and rate it a one. Now, having said that, it might be because, you know, I am a big Pac-Man fan and this kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. So it might simply be because... It's simply, you think it's a Pac-Man game, but then you realize it's not a Pac-Man game. It is a educational game, so you feel ripped off. So I have to step aside and just think about it as just a standalone game that mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Pac-Man. That it doesn't have any Pac-Man characters in it, doesn't have Pac-Man in the name of it. And having said all that, well, I don't ever want to play this piece of shit. Again, I'm going to rate it a one. <laughs> all that, and it was so anticlimactic. Yeah, there's no climate in it whatsoever, so yeah. Well. Oh, and by the way, do you know the name of the development team who developed Professor Suckman? The name of the team? No. It was David Nutting Associates. Oh. Who also designed Gorf. And in fact, both Gorf and Professor Pac-Man kind of have the same Easter egg in them. It's buried in the, uh, in the code, the designer credits. It has the name of the game followed by DNA and then the designer's initials. You know what? And there's something else these games have in common. Oh, do tell. They're both based on the Astrocade platform. And that's the theme of, oh. today's, game, of today's show. Oh. These are games based on the Astrocade platform. Oh. And there's also something else they have in common. Jamie Fenton. I don't know if she was actually involved in Professor Pac. She was. What did she do for Professor Pac-Man? I believe she worked on the sound. I don't think so. I think I saw what you were talking about, but I think because of the comma placement or something like that, I think I don't think she was involved with that. But uh, the other thing they have in common is that both of these games kind of abuse Namco licenses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's true. I did yeah. not think about that, but you are absolutely 100% correct. You are correct, sir. Yes. So, man, we had like a trifecta of themes in this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, man. Uh, it's, uh, and, it, and it went from excellent to suck. Or for me, yeah. it went from good to suck. Meh. Well, yeah, good I, to I suck. Wouldn't so. go to, I wouldn't go so low as to say Gorf is meh. I mean, I do like it. I just don't. I kind of figured you would rate, would have rated Gorf higher, but maybe it's because I have one better little... memories of it, too. But um, another reason, though, that I, that I want to rate Professor Suckman so low is because this was late 1983, and they used really crappy hardware to do it. You know, for it was not not crappy, but they used really primitive hardware. They could have used much better hardware and got a. But it True. seemed to me like what they were doing. Well, Professor Pac-Man was the last game to use the Astrocade platform. Yeah, but it seemed to me that they were just basically trying to find a reason to use old technology that that was just laying around. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I had not seen the game since 1983, 1984-ish, between then and the time that I actually first tried to play it. And I noticed that, man, the graphics really, the, the resolution on the screen really does look kind of primitive mm -hmm. for, what it could have, for what it should have been. I mean, considering that Journey, I think, came earlier, and even that used digitized graphics, for God's sakes, and it wasn't on the Bally Astrocade. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so there we have it. So do you have anything further have to say about... Um, Professor, no. this game sucks no. to high heaven. No. no, no, no. All right. So with that, let's uh, talk about what we're going to talk about next episode. Ah, what are we going to talk about next episode? Uh, we're going to talk about the games Timber Ooh. and Do Run Run. Ah. You know, I met him on a Monday and my heart stood still. Do Run Run? <clears throat> Do Run Run. 
So there you are. Speaking of thanking our Patreon sponsors, I thanked one of them earlier. Also want to thank Michael D'Angelo, Rory Coleman, Scott Lambert, Andy Ryerson, Keith Sheehan, Nate Lockhart, and Richard Valdez. Uh, Andy Ryerson is one of the co-hosts of the Super Podcast Brothers, and I heard rumblings that they're going to be uh, coming back pretty uh soon. So. We will let you know as soon as we find out more. Yeah, and of course, Greg Pollander is the, uh, who we mentioned oh, before, co- is Soul Blazer. Host who is of the, the host Super of the, not, SNES podcast. Yeah, not the Sneeze podcast. It's, it's not the Sneeze because he, he, like, he doesn't like it when we say Sneeze. So That's what we called it. Eh. That's what so, I always called it. I, I'll, I'll, I'll stop pronouncing it Sneeze as soon as you start pronouncing Galaga correctly. Yeah, did you hear that, Greg? So start saying Galaga correctly. Yeah, start pronouncing it Galaga, and then we will have a deal. But anyway, so. what, what was my name again? Like Startled Sean or something? Or something like that. Something like but that. And uh, you are? Jimmy G, brought to you by Summer's Eve. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll be back with um, episode 38. Assuming this gets out in time, uh, hope to see uh, hope to see people over at Underground Retrocade in the 28th. West Dundee, Illinois. All right, so there you go. We'll talk to you all at a future date, and... Bye-bye. Yay, no more Professor Suckman. And we don't have to talk about it ever again. Isn't it good to get it out of your system? Ah, it's gone. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Addenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on PieFactoryPodcast.com. Support the show at Patreon.com slash PieFactoryPodcast. All right, one thing we got to link to in the show notes, you bring up Air Supply. There was a um, a literal video version of oh, uh, making love out of nothing at all. Oh dear lord, it is freaking hilarious! I'm not going to say anything, but it is one of the funniest damn things I had heard in a long time, and I haven't posted it on my Facebook page recently. But at any rate, so that's uh, I want to I propose that Mike Nesmith from the Monkees, who by the way is one of the founding fathers of MTV, Mike Nesmith is, but. Uh, I want to propose that he invented the literal video without even having to change the, the lyrics or anything. You uh, Just do a search on YouTube for Elephant Parts mm-hmm. or Mike Nesmith or Michael Nesmith cruising because the lyrics to the song actually are describing what's going on in the video. Hmm. And that same guy that did the, one, the video I was talking about actually did one based on uh, Daydream Believer. Ah, I've seen that one. Yes. And, um, oh, by the way, uh, on my Facebook page today, I shared Tom Jones singing a Beatles song. Just, uh, and I tagged you in it. So enjoy. Yes, you did. Get that and, image uh, out of your mind. Yeah. And guess who didn't watch it and who yes, refused I to watch guess. it? Yeah. But, Even though uh, I kind of like Tom Jones, but oh well, that was forgettable. Anyway, right. so anyway. I think. You're, you're about to ask me something. What's the, what question do you have on your mind, Jimmy G, brought to you by Summer's Eve? Does anybody really know what time it is? 25 or 6 to 4. Only this and nothing more. Ballet for a girl from Buchanan. There once was a man from Nantucket. That's all eh. I have. <laughs> Look how butt hurt. Gosh. I need new impersonations. Um, yes, you do. Eh. This is like <sighs> Professor. Uh, let me see. I got to think of a different. Let me see. I think Professor Pac-Man would be more like Van Driesen. <clears throat> Professor Pac-Man. Okay. Okay.
Yeah, I'll tell you what. I don't. I don't agree at all politically with Ayn Rand, but her. I find her work fascinating. I really do. It's, Anthem it's is one of the best books I've ever. I, one of the I best loved stories Anthem. I've ever read. That's yeah. that is great. It, it's more philosophical than political. Uh, yeah, if you will. That's right. yeah, I think in that's, fact, it was a it was a philosophy class, and I had to read that. And honestly, I think that would make a better movie than what they tried to do with getting Atlas Shrugged made into a three part movie. Which oh man, I've I've had no I know of people who are huge um, Ayn Rand fans and that absolutely despised the films. So if that tells you anything, but anyway, <clears throat> that's as political as this podcast but ever yeah. gets. Some people call me a space cowboy. Some people be the gangster love. Some people call me Maurice. Woo! Woo! Because I speak of the Papa Toast of 